You join me please in reading a selection from Psalm 91, reading together. The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say concerning the Lord, who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, he himself will rescue you from the bird trap, from the destruction plague. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. And you will not fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the plague that stalks in the darkness, or the pestilence that ravages at noon. We will be in Psalm 91 this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word and for the lessons that we can learn. And as we study this psalm together this morning, I ask that you'd help us to understand the, the context and what's going on in the psalm. And also, Lord, just help us to understand your heart and who you are as a result of what's being described here. Help us to understand, help us to capture what's going on, and Lord, help us also to be willing to think it through and put it into practice in our own lives. We thank you. We praise you in your name. Amen. Please be seated. When Carol and I lived in Detroit, uh, I took summer trips with uh, teens pretty much every year. We would drive all the way down to the border and uh, in McAllen, Texas and several places along the way there, we would go over into Mexico and spend a week, two, three weeks. Uh, one summer we were working in Reynosa, which is right there on the border, and I went down early to do some setup and get things ready for the team that was coming. And the first day I was down there, the, team's come, uh, the team was coming that day and we were going to start work the next, but the first day the temperature was like 100 degrees and a little bit more than that. And so we knew it was going to be kind of a hot week and a rough week. Um, and so, you know, we got the people all together and uh, we got them into their teams and we said, okay, tomorrow morning we're going to go. And then, then we got up and we had a prayer meeting. And in that prayer meeting, one of the young guys prayed, Lord, we know it's going to be really, really hot. Give us a lot of shade. And um, <clears throat> I was sitting there thinking to myself, you know, I've been to every one of the work sites. There wasn't a tree on any of them. Uh, there was nothing. I mean, there might have been like a brick wall you could maybe get next to, but there was no shade, none whatsoever. So we get out there, and we put them all in their locations where they're working, <clears throat> and um, we got, about, got there about 8 o'clock, and about 9 o'clock, the biggest um, cumulus clouds I've ever seen in my life just came by very, very, very slowly, and I thought, maybe... And sure enough, the clouds would come over and we'd have intense shade for anywhere from three or four or five minutes and then the cloud would be by and we were waiting for the next one. All day long, all day long we had that. And, and I thought to myself, I'm really thankful that 14-year-old kid prayed for shade. Because <laughs> we desperately needed it, we desperately did. And as we look at Psalm 91, you'll see that this is not something, now maybe we don't think of it culturally and in our time frame anymore but in israel when there was not a whole when there wasn't any air conditioning and you're in the desert areas shade is really important and so jumping into verse one 
It says, those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And so there you go. You already have a shadow that you're talking about. This declared, this I declared about the Lord. He alone is my refuge and my place of safety. He is my God and I trust Him. So one of the questions that struck me as I was kind of thinking of this devotionally is, am I close enough to be in His shadow? Now, talking about God, and God could be as immense as he wants to be and cast any size shadow he wants, but again, you've got to be close to whatever it is that's casting the shadow. And that just kind of hit me. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High rest, find, find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Now again, there's, in the first four verses here, there's four names for God, different names. You've got the Most High there in verse 1. Uh, that's in the Hebrews, Elion, and, and it means sovereign ruler, or high above every power. That's the kind of implication in, in that word. And you find rest in the shadow. And again, like I say, in that time and in that culture, they understood what it meant to have shade and a place to rest away from the burning sun. And then um, <clears throat> we will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And this is Shaddai. It means, again, one having power. And these two names of God really bring out the power and the sovereign ruler of God. The sovereign the fact that he's the sovereign ruler over everything. You know, verse 2 then goes on to say, This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He's my God, and I trust him. Um, and again, devotional question for me was, Can I say he's my God and I fully trust him? And am I saying it in a way that it actually impacts my thinking for what's going on around me at any point in time of the day. But he says, I declare this. I proclaim this about the Lord. And this is um, Yahweh, the personal name of God that's being emphasized here. He says, I declare this about him. He alone is my refuge. I don't turn to anyone else. He is the one that shelters me. He's my place of safety. And the word here is the whole idea of a fortress. Uh, you know, big walls, stone walls that you can't get over. Or, and even if it was on top of some kind of a rock or a big hill or mountain or something where you had solid rock and then the, the walls starting up, this would be an impregnable fortress. You wouldn't be able to get in. And that's the thought here. He alone is my refuge. He's my shelter. He's my place of safety. He's my mountain stronghold where nobody can get to me. Nobody can touch me in this place of safety. And then the, the phrase, he is my God. This is Eloha, the God, the creator. Um, so he is my creator and I trust him. Absolute, total confidence in God. Um, the whole idea that I think is being spelled out here very clearly is, I have nobody else to turn to. God is all there is. And he's enough. That's, that's the thing that sometimes we forget. We may say, well, God is all there is, but do we believe he's enough for whatever it is that we're facing? Because that's the reality we need to come to grips with. And the psalmist is saying, he's enough. He's my shelter. He's all of these things that I've been saying. And then verse 3, he moves on. He says, for he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly diseases. Now, some translations say he will rescue you from the fowler's snare, which is the whole idea of a, someone who's out trapping or netting birds with snares. Um, 
You know, he says, for he, he will rescue you. He will keep you safe. He will keep you from falling into those traps or those snares, if you will. Um, and again, it, it, this is the picture of someone who's hunting the person being hunted for their harm. You know, they're chasing these birds not for the good of the birds. They want these birds either to eat or to sell or something. And so that's the imagery behind, I declare about the Lord, he alone is in my ref. I'm sorry, wrong place. For he will rescue you from the snare, from the trap. And it says he will protect you. You will not be exposed to harm from deadly disease, from life-taking plagues, sickness, pandemic. We live in a day and age when our pandemics, we can talk about them and yell about them, and they're just all over the news. Imagine the time frame when... These things swept the world and nobody knew other than to, you know, by word of mouth when travelers came. Um, so he says he, he will keep you from that. Verse 4, he will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. And, and again, just the thought that came to me was, do I believe God is faithful? Do I really? Or do I really believe that he's faithful to me? Oh, yeah, yeah, he was faithful to David, and he was faithful to those other folks, but can I honestly say that I believe he's faithful to me? <clears throat> he will cover you with his feathers, a protection covering like an eagle, covering its young, um, shelter you with his wings, <clears throat> he will protect you. Um, it's interesting that in a lot of the imagery of wings and being in the, the protection of the wing is pictures of a, a bird that's protecting the young. And um, there are times and places where mother birds will actually protect their young to such a point where they may be killed by maybe a fire going by, but the young are all spared <clears throat> because of what she's done. <clears throat> His faithful promises are your armor <clears throat> and protection. The net translation says it this way, his faithfulness is a shield or a protective wall. So it's either this big shield that you put up to keep the arrows from hitting you, or it's a protective wall you can hide behind like in a fortress, and they can't get to you in any way, shape, or form. One of the things I came across was this statement, God's care is both tender and sufficient because he's faithful and true. So I'm really sorry, folks. Came across this quote, and I think it was somewhat helpful. Uh, the scripture, in the scriptures, under his wings is a metaphor or a word picture for the protective refuge of God's presence. So we think of wings and they're kind of fragile and not all that protective. Well, to the younger birds, they're very protective. But when we're thinking of God as having wings, it's really not that he has wings necessarily, but it's that he has protective power and he protects us. He is our refuge, his presence. When it says, you know, the whole idea we are under his wings, it means we are under his, we are in his protective custody. We are being cared for by God and his presence. <clears throat> so, as we move on, let's go into verse 5 and 6. He said, again, think of, thinking through the context, because God is protecting us with his wings and gathering us in closely, because God is faithful and he protects us with his shield, 
Um, and because of that, verse 5 says, do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrow that flies in the day. So, so don't be afraid of the things that might happen in the night. Yes, that's a vulnerable time to be attacked by the enemy, but don't be full of terror over that. And, and by the way, maybe you're in the daytime, you're in a war where they're shooting lots of arrows. Don't fear the arrows. Don't fear those things that are coming at you, seeking to destroy you. So don't be afraid of those things, uh, night or day. Don't be afraid. And, and this is one of those sections where we, we, always, for, we always need to remember that the, the Hebrew Psalms, most of them were a form of poetry. And in this case, you're going to see there's all kinds of parallels and all kinds of things that go back and forth. Don't be afraid of the terrors of night, nor the things that come in the day. In the next verse, don't dread the diseases that stalk in the darkness, nor the disaster that strikes midday. So again, you've got the, the night and the day things being contrasted there. In verse 6, <clears throat> uh, don't dread the diseases that stalk the night. And it, again, that whole idea of an enemy attacking that you can't see. Or the disaster that strikes at midday. Um, something that overpowers and, and comes along and destroys. That You don't need to be fearful of that. It's interesting, it, it, the, the dark here... Um, it's really saying, you know, you may be fearful in the dark, and that's understandable because you can't see the enemy, but don't worry, I can. I remember when I was, when I was in my early teens, um, I could be in, a, in full dark, and it didn't bother me in the least. But put me in a situation where it was very dark, but there were still shadows and that kind of thing. Now, that drove me crazy because my imagination could see all kinds of amazing things in the darkness. And the Lord is saying, you don't need to fear the things in the darkness. Don't worry about those things that are in the dark. I've, on one level, he's saying, I've got you covered night and day. It doesn't matter. I'm with you. Verse 7, though a thousand fall at your side and though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Um, on one level, what God is saying here is, if I'm protecting you, you're safe. You know, a thousand people, if I have to get rid of a thousand people to keep you safe, I will do that, God says. If I have to take care of this other situation, and that image of the second part of that verse is they're dying around you. So you're alive and all around you, people are dying. And uh, he says, you know, the evils will not touch you. I've got you. And it raised a question for me. Do I really believe that God is so big that he can handle anything that comes along? Do I really and again, if I do, how does that impact my fears and, my, and the way I live? Um, on one level, this, this picture, if this is, verse 7 is about God's intervention on behalf of the person he's, he's sparing or saving, this is immense. And, and think about it, God can do it. It's, it's just a, a simple thought or a simple command. And then he says, just open your eyes and see how the wicked are punished. Just look around you. These people might have been after you, but they're not going to get you because I've taken care of it for you. And <clears throat> really struck me that uh, in, this, again, is Hebrew poetry and it's imagery and it's stuff that many times we don't understand culturally, and yet that is, that is really the bottom line of what he's saying. I'm, I will take care of you. If it means wiping out these evil people here or those evil people there, I will do that because you're the one that I'm concerned with. And he says that to his people and he says that to those who honor him and, and, and serve him and love him. I came across this quote 
<clears throat> the Lord gives security from all natural and supernatural causes of fear. And I, I love this part of it. There's no limit to his protection because he has full authority over all things that happen on earth. So when you start thinking that through, you're thinking, okay, God, God really does have me, and, and he does watch over me, and it is day and night he's, he's taking care of it. There's a couple implications here I wanted to just touch on. Um, verse 1 and 2, again, <clears throat> go ahead and put those up there, Daryl, please. There we go. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust Him. Can we say He's my God and I trust Him? What about that really hard thing you were going through this week? Or can you say that at that point in time and things are going on that you could say, God, I, I trust you. I trust you with this. What does that look like when we say we're facing struggles and temptations and hard things? How do we trust God when it seems to be going really badly? How do we do that? I think Proverbs helps. Gives us some interesting thoughts here. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend or lean or trust your own understanding. So, trust in God. Uh, and by the way, don't trust yourself. You're probably not all that reliable. When it comes to choosing between trusting God and trusting yourself, there should be no question that it's God that we're going to put our full trust in. And trust in the Lord with all your heart. Um, seek to depend on Him, not your own plan or your own way that you want to go. Verse 6 says, Seek His will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take, or he will direct your steps, if you will. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Ever met somebody that was impressed with their own wisdom? Run into a few, and um, it's really hard, especially when they're wrong. <laughs> when I was younger, I really wanted to let them know they were wrong. I've discovered since it's just not all that helpful. Uh, I can just smile and say, oh, that's interesting, and move on. But seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So turn towards God. Trust him. Trust that he's going to come through and do what he said he will do. And turn away from evil. So, so we're supposed to trust God, not our own understanding. We're supposed to seek His will, not necessarily what we want to do. And, and we're not supposed to be impressed with how smart we think we are, or how much we have figured out, or what we know. The reality here is we're talking about an infinite God and a very finite human being. Trust the infinite God. That's essentially what Proverbs is saying. Put all your trust in him. Don't put it in yourself. <clears throat> what happens if the things that we're going through are hard and difficult and it seems like God's not there? What, what do we do then? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own wisdom or understanding. I met Kempe, a young man who had been a prisoner in Myanmar many years ago and I had a chance to go and, and do some teaching in, in a seminary there in Yangon. 
Now, in Myanmar, Christianity and Christians technically have the legal right to exist. They have no, there's no legal ability for you to talk to anybody else that is not already a Christian about becoming a Christian. You proselyte in any way, and that is a jailable offense. Okay, so that's, that's Myanmar. And um, Kempi was one of those guys who was just all over the place, sharing the gospel with people. And, and, and he saw, he was actually the head of a small home church. And um, he decided that he had seen some information about a uh, kind of like a, a training course that would help him in, in, in the things that he was doing and things that he was trying to do ministry-wise. And so he prayed about it because, you know, to try to get out of Myanmar, if you're a citizen of that country, is incredibly difficult. And so he prayed about it, prayed about it, and finally said, you know what, I'm going to apply for a visa with the government to give me that chance to go to this conference. And it was a, it was a Christian conference that, that he wanted to go to. Well, he made the application and was almost immediately arrested and thrown in prison. Um, from what I understand of people who have been in different places, Myanmar's got some of the most brutal prisons around. Many people just go in and never come back. They just die there. Uh, for m- much of the time that Kempi was there, he was in a room where there was no way that anybody could sit or lie down. They had to stand. They had to stand the whole time. Food was almost non-existent. And, and, and Kempi just kept on sharing the gospel. <clears throat> he kept telling people about Jesus. And then at one point, he was sharing with us that at one point he, um, he just got so discouraged. He'd been in months, and people were trying to get him out, and they couldn't. And, and, and so he, he just he said, Lord, I, I, I just want this to be over. It's almost like he was hoping the Lord would just take him home and, and he could get, be through with all that was going on in this prison. And as he's thinking these things through, and, and in a sense, really just wishing that he could be home with the Lord, one of the guys came up to him and said, hey, tell me about this Jesus guy. All of a sudden, can be understood. God can use any situation. And let's face it, Probably the first time the gospel had ever been shared in that place. And Kempe had time to do that. He was eventually released and, and was okay to, to move on into ministry again. But I asked myself, why did this happen? I mean, that's horrible stuff to have to go through. Where's God? Where, where's this protecting God that, that we're, we're studying about? And I think one of the things I need to think through is that God was protecting Kempe. It didn't look like it from my perspective, but Kempe wasn't killed outright. Kempe was not tortured in any way other than the, the living conditions. And Kempe was doing something nobody had ever done, taking the gospel into this prison. And God brought him out. And so like Kempe, if we learn that even in a hard or difficult time, we, we need to realize we can say, he is my God and I will trust him. Second implication, I think we find in verse 4. So says, He will cover you with His feathers. He will shelter you with His wings. His faithful promise, promises are your armor and your protection. Verse 4, net translation says, His faithfulness is like a shield or a protective wall. 
protective wall. I'm in my fortress and nobody can get me because God is my shield. He's my protective wall. And I love the fact that God's faithfulness never ends. God, God is a shield, his protection, protective wall. And, and when you think about what ancient fighting in the, in the near ancient East was like, it was many times very large shields that when all of the archers would shoot volleys of arrow to them, they'd put these big, huge shields, sometimes putting them next to each other so they could protect a whole bunch of people underneath from those arrows. <clears throat> the other image is the whole idea of a strong fortress and being behind protective walls where nothing, nothing can touch you. And the psalm says God's faithfulness is just like that. He is, his faithfulness is our protection. His faithfulness is what keeps us safe. His faithfulness never runs out. God's faithfulness is, is our daily protection against whatever we're going through, whatever we face, the struggles that we have. God's faithfulness was Kempe's protection as he was in that horrible prison. Lamentations 3 is one of my favorite chapters. Verse 19, The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. And this is Jeremiah. Uh, many people feel that what was going on here is he's actually maybe sitting outside the city looking down on the ruins after Nebuchadnezzar had come and destroyed the city and taken captives. And he's sitting up there looking down on all of this and he's saying, where am I going to go? There's, there weren't any buildings left that really stood anymore. They were destroying everything, leveling everything. He says, I, I'm never going to forget this. I'm going to grieve over my loss. But there's a turning point right there in the book of Lamentations. Because the very next verse, out of his despair, out of his seeming helplessness and hopelessness, Jeremiah says in verse 21, yet I still dare to hope. What? I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. And so Jeremiah's sitting there looking out over the ruins, and he says, I do have this one hope. God's faithful. God is faithful. Promises that he made, he will fulfill. And so I trust and believe that when he says that his mercy is being applied to me and that his faithfulness will go with me no matter what happens, I'm believing and I'm trusting that. The city's still destroyed. The people have been taken captive. But God is still God. And none of it caught God by surprise. Not one thing and Nebuchadnezzar's taking of Jerusalem caught God by surprise. His faithfulness never ends. And his faithfulness even to the people that he sent into captivity was, I'm sending you away because we have a problem with idolatry. And in this time frame, you're going to learn, and that won't be an issue anymore. And so you've got all of this going on, God using discipline, in the lives of his people to bring them to where he wanted them to come. So God is faithful always. We can trust him. 
He's a God who knows what he's doing. We can trust his faithfulness because it never, never ends. And his faithfulness is like that wall of protection. Because God's faithful, we are protected. Verse 9, if you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you and no plague will come near you. So uh, here we are, we're moving on, and, and it seems like that the person who spoke in these first eight verses, now there's a response to that. Some people think it was an individual, and then maybe some of the people from the, the congregation or something were responding to his statements. But if you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near you. Uh, if you make the Lord your refuge, okay, the shelter, the place of, that we go from, from, to be safe from danger. If you make the Most High your shelter, make Him your dwelling place. That's the idea there. Make Him the place where you dwell. You dwell in Him. And so make him your dwelling place, your place of safety. And when you do that, no evil can conquer you because you are in Christ. You are in him and you're dwelling in him. And hard things come along and may impact you, but they can't take you. There's nothing that can touch you on that deepest level. Now, does the Lord guarantee that no evil will befall on those who trust him? Um, All those who find refuge in him rest? Is there confidence in that, that we'll not have any troubles at all? But I don't think that's what he's saying. I do think what he's saying is, as you go through these trials and troubles and difficult things, you're not alone. Remember I said I was with you day and night? Well, I am. Some of these things you will go through because they shape and they mold you and make you more like Jesus. Some of these things are part of being in a sinful culture, in a sinful world, and so there's an impact from that. But you are protected because the worst that can happen to you is I call you home. That's the worst. The very worst of us is that we get promoted. We get to be with the Lord Jesus. I, <clears throat> I um, My dad died in... A lot of years ago, I don't even remember how many, but before he died, uh, when we were in Michigan, every Saturday at 7 a.m. he'd call. And he was calling to help me work on my sermon every single week. And whatever it was, it was an illustration or another passage, and it was like having a computer. I'd say, hey, Dad, I'm kind of thinking about this. Oh, yeah, well, you go over here and look at this passage, and, and here's an illustration for that. And so he'd finish my sermon for me, which is awesome. Um, and I miss that. If he was given a choice to come back, as much as he loves me, he'd say No. And rightly so. Because once we get there, it's going to be so incredible that we just can't wait to keep on going to all eternity and being reunited with those that we've left behind. Verse 11 through 12 say, For he he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Those two verses are why this is a messianic psalm. 
If you remember, when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, he took him to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, throw yourself down. Why? Well, because God will send his angels and will swoop you out of the air and you won't even hit a foot against the stone. That was the temptation. And there's a lot involved in that temptation, but Jesus' answer was, you can't tempt the Lord your God. We're not going to do that. And that was the end of that temptation. Now, some people will take these two verses and say, here's the absolute proof that everybody has their own guardian angel. Uh, that's really not what these verses are saying. You may be able to maybe pursue that somewhere else. But right here, what it's saying is it doesn't matter what's happening. God has all of the angelic hosts at his disposal, and he can send them wherever he needs something done. That's really what's being said here. So we've got all these angelic hosts, and he says, don't be afraid, because even God can even do that if he needs to. He can send angels to take care of you. And then, verse 13, he goes on to say, you will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. And as you're reading through that, you're thinking, what, where's he going with this? Well, remember, Satan was portrayed as what? He came as a snake in, in Eden, didn't he? And he's portrayed as the servant in, in other places of Scripture as well. And then there's also Peter who says that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking who he might devour. So on one level, I think that's what he's saying here. You can trample on lions and cobras. Why? Because it's God doing the trampling. And, and, and it's not me standing up and fighting. It's God fighting for me. I came across this quote I thought was helpful. In life, the Lord may permit many terrible things to happen to his children, as he did to his own son our Lord. But his children know that no power is out of God's control. And that's what we have to go back to all the time. Going through really hard things, going through some struggles. Uh, there have been times I've, I've gotten to the end of a week and thought, man, I don't ever want to do that again. Whatever happened to have been, it's just really hard. And the reality is nothing comes into my life that's apart from God's will. Nothing comes into my life that can hurt me because God is protecting me. And even if my life is taken in some setting and I'm martyred, that's okay. I'm going home. I'm going home. So an implication here. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you, no plague will come near you. And then in verses 5 to 6, remember, it said night or day, God is at work. He, we are safely in his hands. Verse 7 and 8 said God's presence was so overwhelming. He says, just watch and see what I'm going to do to the wicked. Now, the problem for us many times is we read things like that and we see them and, and we say, okay, I believe those things and boy, I desperately want those things to be visible in my life. I want to see God doing those things. I want to see him whacking the evil people. I want to, I want to see him protecting me in some special, unique way. And we'd always very seldom get to see those things. Many times it's way down the road afterwards that we look back and say, oh, that was God's hand. That was God working. Um, King Jehoshaphat's a great example of, of someone who went through some pretty hard things. He was the king of Judah. Three armies had gathered and had, you know, stationed themselves in such a way to prepare for war against Judah. And Judah at this point was, did not have a huge army, and they, they were struggling in every way, and they thought, there's no way we can win against these three armies. And uh, Second Chronicles 20, 12 this is part of their prayer. We do not know what to do, but we are looking 
to you, God, for help. And so, God, you are our only hope. If you don't come through here, um, we will be destroyed as a nation and as a people. God responded through a prophet, verse 15. Listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Listen, King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged by this mighty army. So he's saying, hey, there's a huge army out there. You know, didn't catch God by surprise, but sure caught Judah by surprise. And then he goes on to say, don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. For the battle is not yours, but the Lord's, but God's. The battle is not yours, but God's. And so the next day, Jehoshaphat led the people of Judah towards where these three armies were. And on the way, Jehoshaphat stopped, verse 20, and he said, listen to me, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God, and you will be able to stand firm. So put your trust, put your hope, put your confidence in God, not us, not our army. We don't have much of one. And, and, and just put your total confidence and trust in God, and he will help you to stand firm. Verse 21, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army. Now, now if you were one of the choir people in Jerusalem, this is not what you had in mind when you went out with the people to war. You didn't want to be the first ones going into battle. And so I just love that, actually. <laughs> the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army. So here they are, probably trumpeters and voices, all singing away. Um, and they're singing to the Lord, praising him for his holy splendor. And this is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord, his faithful love endures forever. I think there's probably more to the song than that. It would have been fun to hear it. But that's what they were doing. Okay, choir, get out there in front. Let's get going. You know, and we start singing. Hey, you know, give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. And at that moment when they started singing, the three armies started fighting each other, and they destroyed each other. No one was left. And I forget how long it took, but it took them days and days to go into the camps where these people had been and just carry away all the goodies, all the plunder. It took them, I think it was a week, they said, to carry it all away. There was so much. They never had to fight. Didn't have to lift a sword. Just had the sin singers out front and let them do their job. <laughs> so that's the thing that strikes me in all of this. The battle is always the Lord's. I may feel like it's my battle and that I'm involved in it, but I'm not. If I would simply say, okay, God, I, don't, I can't fight this on my own. I don't know how. I don't want to. Lord, the battle is yours, and I know you're protecting me day and night. I understand that, so just, Lord, do what you got to do. I trust, and I believe you. The last um, three verses, 14, 15, 16, uh, verse 14, the Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. And, and this is the whole idea of saying, hey, hold on fast to the Lord in love. Know him and, and seek to understand him and, and know him well. Call on him in any time of trouble. That's verse 14. And then verse 15, when they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. So God's pledge to those who call on him is, I'll deliver, I will protect, I will answer, I will be with you in trouble, and I will rescue you. That's God's answer. Now, again, many times those rescues and those answers don't, uh, don't come in the way maybe we wish they would or in the way we think they should, 
But they come. They come. And then the last one. I will reward them with long life and give them my salvation. Now, some people <clears throat> feel that he's really speaking here about physical long lives. And in, in the day when this was written, that, that um, the whole idea of having a long life meant God was, was blessing. Uh, but I think there's also a secondary way of seeing that, and that is God's reward for those who long for life, who have his salvation, is eternal life. It goes on forever. And so we, when we believe the eternal life starts, it never ends. It just keeps going. Just keeps going. The theme of Psalm 91 centers on absolute trust in God and loyalty to Him no matter what. The secondary is God is sovereign over all things. So, in all of the difficulties mentioned, God is in control. He's watching His people, He's dealing with the struggles and the hurts that we have. And in all of those difficulties, we can hang on. And never quit because he's there. He's helping us. Maybe you remember the story of Eric Little that uh, the movie Chariots of Fire portrayed him in. And uh, it tells the story of Eric Little, who was a Scotsman who ran in the Olympics and broke uh, the world's record. And there's a whole bunch of stories that go around with that. But that was just part of his life. It was his college kind of days and that time frame. And then he went on to do what he really wanted to do, which is to serve in China. And he had medical training, and uh, so he went, and he was doing medical work and, and working with people and working with churches and helping people come to Christ. And he and his family were still there when the Japanese invaded China. Okay, so the Japanese come into China, they invade the area, they finally get to the rural areas where they are, and they take the missionaries and they put them in a concentration camp. And um, nobody knows what's going to happen at this point. So they're in a concentration camp, and in the concentration camp, Eric Little is the doctor, the guy who takes care of everybody medically. He's the guy that gets the children playing games and sports and that kind of a thing to keep them active. He's the guy that's leading the Bible studies and, and doing the, the teaching at their services. And, and so he, everything's happening because he's involved in doing and serving. And remember, these are not, you know, they're just free. They're, they're in a prison camp. Towards the end of the war, getting closer to the end of the war, there were prisoner exchanges that were made sometimes, and, and he was actually offered a chance, because he started to get quite sick, he was offered a chance to return to England in exchange for somebody else, and he wouldn't do it, because there was a lady who was expecting a baby. So he sent her. He died in that prison camp five months before the Allies liberated it, if you can imagine. How could God let that happen? How could God do that? I mean, this is a guy who served faithfully in difficult places, and yet God said, I've got your reward ready for you. Come on home. See, we look at that and we think, oh man, that's terrible. And God looks at that and said, he did his job. It's time to come home. We have to remember God sees all, knows all, and does what is right always. It's part of his nature. He can't do what is wrong 
Now, we don't have all of the information about how he decided what to do and why he did it that way, but we know that God was working in this man and through him to touch many thousands. Psalm 139 reminds us of several related things. Speaking to the Lord, you watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Before you're even born. Before you're even born, the Lord says, I've written it all down. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. So Eric, you're going to be in the Olympics, and you're going to work hard, and you're going to win that gold medal. You're going to get to go <clears throat> to China. You're going to get to serve a whole bunch of years and do some amazing things. And when you're done, you get to come home. John Wesley said this, and I think it's appropriate for how we see this psalm, I think. Until my work on earth is done, I am immortal. And I think that's absolutely true. But when my work for Christ is done, I go to be with Jesus. The battle is not ours. It is the Lord's. And no matter what we're facing, what we're seeing, what we're going through, he is with us always. We are never alone. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that you give us these things and you help us to see just little glimmers of who you are and how you work. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. We are thrilled as we learn more of how you work and what you do. And Lord, just I pray that you'd help each one of us in this week to kind of grasp that truth that you really are working and working for our good. Thank you, Lord God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.